This episode is brought to you by Squarespace. Start building your website today at squarespace.com. Enter offer code HISTORY at checkout to get 10% off. Squarespace. Build it beautiful. Hi, I'm Lauren Vogelbaum, host of the new How Stuff Works Now podcast. Every week, I'll be bringing you three stories from our team about the weird and wondrous developments we've seen in science, technology, and culture. Fresh episodes will be out every Monday on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play Music, and everywhere else that fine podcasts are found. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy B. Wilson. And I'm Holly Prime. Today we are picking up where we left off in our story of Hercules Mulligan. Yes, inspired by the play Hamilton. Although, as we mentioned in part one, literally the only character or place or whatever that appears in Hamilton that no one has asked us to talk about. (laughs) (laughs) I just wanted to do it. After years of protesting and resisting British rule in New York... Hercules Mulligan passed some important information on relating to the safety of George Washington, which possibly saved the man's life. And today we will talk about how this one-time act of happenstance, where he just happened to be in the right place at the right time with the right intoxicated person to get important information, uh, sort of transformed into a career as a full-time spy. As we talked about in part one, Hercules Mulligan owned an extremely fashionable clothing shop on Queen Street in New York. When British forces moved into the city, more and more British officers started buying clothes from him, including their uniforms and formal wear for the evenings. Mulligan also did repairs for soldiers in the lower ranks. He kept on selling to civilians as well. Basically, anyone who wanted fashionable, well-made clothing could go to Hercules. And a lot of people were willing to overlook his solid history resisting the British in order to buy clothes from him. So great was his reputation. There were also people who overlooked the fact that they found the man personally to be kind of tacky and and gauche. (laughs) Like, you can kind of imagine a very flamboyant, showy person uh, rubbing some of the snobbier ilk the wrong way. Because Hercules Mulligan's brother owned Cartwright and Company, and his wife was the niece of a Royal Navy admiral, he was in a pretty socially prestigious position. And as always, food, drink, and lively conversation were part of any shopping excursion to Mulligan's place of business. He started picking up little tidbits about the British forces and its plans through casual conversation and through exactly what kind of clothing people were ordering from him. Things that seemed to be unseasonably warm or cool for what the weather was like in New York suggested that somebody might be about to be deployed somewhere else. Soon, he became reacquainted with Haim Solomon, a Jew who had emigrated from Poland and had been jailed at Provost Prison at the same time as Mulligan had. Solomon told Mulligan that he had told the British he wanted to join their cause, and having heard that a lot of British officers were having trouble communicating with German-speaking Hessian soldiers, he offered his services as a translator. As people had gotten used to his presence, they had stopped being particularly careful about what information they shared in front of him, or how sensitive the materials were that they gave him to translate. As As a bit of a side note, Solomon was one of the people who was spreading rumors to the Hessian soldiers that they'd actually be a lot better off deserting, which is a phenomenon we talked about in our previous podcast on the Hessians. Desertion rates were kind of high because they had heard that they could stay in the United States and run a farm and how great that would be. One of the sources of that idea was Haim Solomon. 
Later on, Haim Solomon was actually captured as a spy and sentenced to death, but the Sons of Liberty broke him out of jail. He went back to his former work as a financial broker, and a lot of his financial works supported the revolution, but some grandiose claims for from later on that led to him being nicknamed the financial hero of the American Revolution were likely invented or at least really deeply embellished by a well-meaning but overzealous son after his death. Mulligan's work at the shop and Salomon's work as a translator meant that together they had all kinds of access to information that would be very useful to the Continental Army. But by this point, the Continental Army was headquartered in Pennsylvania, and there was no possible way either man could travel there and back unnoticed. Yeah, apart from the fact that Hercules Mulligan had already had only been released from jail under the condition that he not leave New York, that was kind of a haul. People would notice if you were gone for that long. And so this is when Hercules Mulligan turned to Cato. So sometimes in the historical record and in uh, articles today, Cato is described as a servant. But it's far more likely that he was enslaved. Like a lot of times people use the word servant to talk about people that they actually owned as property, not as servants who were paid for their labor. He So he probably was uh, Hercules Mulligan's property. People were used to seeing Cato deliver Mulligan's merchandise, both to British and Hessian officers. So he seemed like a pretty good choice to start delivering other things as well. First, Mulligan gave Cato advertisements for his shop to take to Solomon and have translated into German. Those were then distributed to Hessian forces. And then Solomon would give Cato documentation of whatever intelligence that he'd gathered, and Cato would take that back to Mulligan. Some of this was about the British force and their plans, where they were being quartered, how they were being trained and disciplined, and what kind of supplies they were procuring. Some of the information was about what was happening in the war itself. Hercules Mulligan learned about the battles of Trenton and Princeton, for example, from Solomon via Cato as the courier who carried the information. Hercules Mulligan gleaned information from his brother Hugh as well. Hugh's firm had become a supplier to the British Army, and as owner, he had information about everything they were buying and where it was to be sent. Some of Hercules Mulligan's intelligence was gathered in his own home as well. As was the case for a lot of people in New York, he was made to house British officers there. There is some disagreement among historians about exactly when and how Hercules Mulligan started officially spying for George Washington. However, sometime around the spring of 1777, George Washington remarked to Alexander Hamilton that he wished they had a trusted spy in New York City who could keep them informed on the situation there. Unsurprisingly, Hamilton suggested his longtime friend, well-known patriot, and friendly ear to a seemingly endless parade of British officers in need of clothing for the job. The formation of the Culper spy ring would follow in about one year. We'll talk a little bit more about Hercules Mulligan's more official spycraft and how he eventually did become associated with this Culper spy ring after a brief word from a sponsor. It's a little bit unclear exactly how Hercules Mulligan found out that he had gotten a job as a spy. The whole thing was undertaken with so much secrecy that there's actually no mention of it in Washington's or Hamilton's papers. In all likelihood, Hamilton sent a message along with a farmer or a merchant or some other civilian with a legitimate reason to get into New York. 
Along with the news that he was to be a spy, Mulligan also got a list of, of safe houses in New York and New Jersey where he could send messages. Many of these messages went via Cato, who people were used to seeing out and about carrying packages to and from Mulligan's shop. He would usually carry a collection of packages, all looking very much like normal parcels of clothing. But some of them contained the intelligence that Mulligan had gathered. At the safe house, goods and intelligence would be repackaged to remove all references to Mulligan and his shop, and then they would be sent on their way. In late April of 1777, Cato carried a package containing details of a British armada that was being assembled under General William Howe. This is a particularly massive fleet, which would contain 260 ships and more than 17,000 men. So the British Army was on the move and by sea. This uh, information also contained details of a number of British and Hessian officers who were asking Mulligan to handle rush orders of lightweight uniforms. So, logical conclusion the British fleet was headed south. Washington first moved his fighting force to Middlebrook, outside of New Brunswick, New Jersey, ready to either defend New Jersey from a massive British attack or to move southward if that was warranted. Watchers along the coast lost sight of the fleet for several weeks. When they were sighted in the Chesapeake Bay on August 20th of 1777, Washington deduced that their target was Philadelphia. This information meant that Washington was, in fact, able to meet General Howe there and mount a defense. However, Howe's superior numbers meant that he took Philadelphia just the same, and he established a headquarters there. For a while, this meant that Mulligan's intelligence in New York wasn't as important. It was nice to have, but with Howe's headquarters in Philadelphia, it often wasn't as critical until later on in 1778, when General Howe resigned and was succeeded by General Henry Clinton, who relocated the British Army's headquarters back to New York. It was about this time when Mulligan first made contact with the Culper Ring. So to recap, for the folks who aren't familiar, the Culper Ring was one of George Washington's intelligence organizations during the American Revolutionary War. The Culper Ring was named for the code names of two of its agents, Abraham Woodhull, who was codenamed Samuel Culper, and Robert Townsend, who was codenamed Samuel Culper Jr. The Culper Ring was organized and managed by Major Benjamin Talmadge. There were other agents and sub-agents in the, in the spy ring as well. And apart from Hercules Mulligan, the most well-known are Caleb Brewster, Austin Rowe, Anna Strong, and a woman known as 355. Rather than sending scouts on short reconnaissance missions in enemy territory, the Culper spy ring operated by keeping a continual presence behind enemy lines in New York. They were all effectively working undercover and reporting their findings of British fortifications and movements back to the Continental Army. Mulligan seems to have become acquainted with the Culper Ring through Robert Townsend, a.k.a. Culper Jr., who he had actually known for several years. And once he was aware of the spy ring's existence, he thought it would be a good idea to maintain a formal connection, to have a second and sometimes better, depending on the circumstances, way of getting information to George Washington. Abraham Woodhull really didn't like this idea. Uh, as we mentioned in part one, Mulligan had been extremely visible in his pro-independence activities. Connecting him, uh, connecting with him seemed like way too much of a risk for a very covert spy ring. So when Townsend started spending time in Mulligan's shop and then collecting documents to pass on to George Washington, it was not entirely with Woodhull's approval. He was in fact so anxious about the idea of being discovered thanks to Mulligan that he sometimes took to his bed over it. Talmadge, on the other hand, knew nothing about it until after the war because the need for secrecy was so great. 
Yeah, they did not have any person who knew literally every other person. That would be a bad idea. <laughs> Covert spy ring. That is a poor one... way to run your spy ring. <laughs> right. For one person to have literally all the detail about all the other people. So Hercules Mulligan used the Culper spy ring to send his his intelligence occasionally and somewhat sporadically. Throughout the war, he really relied a lot more on Cato to do it. Cato wound up being arrested and interrogated at Provost Prison at least once, where he was reportedly treated extremely cruelly. Mulligan eventually arranged his release, and he did continue to work as a courier after that point. But having been captured once did make him a little bit less effective as a covert operative. He sort of was on the list now, like Hercules Mulligan, of people who were trouble. Mulligan was arrested a second time in May of 1778, following an attempt by British forces to recruit him to the army at a tavern, thinking that he appeared to be so popular that if he enlisted, surely others would follow. Mulligan, of course, refused, and the whole thing threatened to lead to a huge bar fight before the British forces left. Shortly thereafter, Mulligan was arrested for obstructing a British officer in the performance of his duties. Mulligan wound up giving a jovial and lighthearted testimony on the matter, and the audience before him included a lot of his customers. And once again, he was released, and once again afterward, he returned to his spy work. The information Mulligan obtained and passed on in late 1778 and early 1779 included a plot to capture or assassinate George Washington and several prominent patriot leaders, including Governor William Livingston of New Jersey. In July of 1779, he also learned that Major Lynch was moving south with with his entire corps, which he heard from the man himself in his shop and confirmed by finding out that his brother was provisioning them. He also passed along information regarding an imminent attack on Charleston, South Carolina in the winter of 1779 to 1780, which Washington was once again able to act on, but similarly to previous experiences, was not enough to successfully defend Charleston from the British forces' far superior numbers. In the summer of 1780, Mulligan gathered some particularly sensitive information. British forces were planning to attack about 5,000 troops led by Count Rochambeau of France when they arrived at Newport, Rhode Island, hoping to surprise them upon their arrival. This would, Britain hoped, derail France's involvement in the war. And this message was so important that Mulligan sent it via the Culper Ring's information chain and by Cato going straight to Hamilton's headquarters. Cato delivered his message first, and once uh, once George Washington heard about it from Alexander Hamilton, he immediately moved to defend the French troops' landing. He also created some false orders about attack being planned onto New York, which he allowed to fall into British hands, making Clinton too wary to leave New York unprotected in order to attack the French force. Rochambeau and his men arrived in Newport and were on their way without having to fight off the British first. Other intelligence efforts were not quite as successful. Uh, in the summer of 1780, Hercules Mulligan was pretty sure that something was going on and that it was something big, but no amount of boisterous conversation and generous libations in his shop could reveal exactly what. It seemed to be happening around the upper Hudson River. Also suspicious on that front was Robert Townsend, whose family home on Oyster Bay was being used to billet British troops, and Major John Andre was frequently seen visiting there. What was going on was that Benedict Arnold was plotting to hand over West Point to the British in exchange for money and a commission in the British Army. None of Townsend's or Mulligan's intelligence had added up to that. I mean, they both knew something was up, but that it still caught everyone by surprise. 
Andre, however, was captured with incriminating documents. So the Patriots did find out about the plot, but not before Benedict Arnold was able to escape behind British lines, carrying with him the knowledge that Washington had a spy network, although apparently not a lot of clear detail about who was involved or how. Andre was executed, and in retaliation, the British started rounding up anyone Arnold named as a spy or a sympathizer. Hercules' brother Hugh happened to be at Clinton's headquarters while negotiating a provisioning contract, and he heard about this order. He let his brother know an arrest was imminent, but Hercules refused to leave New York. Once again, Hercules Mulligan was arrested, and this time he was taken to Bridewell Prison, which is where he learned that his arrest had been because Benedict Arnold had named him as a spy. He nearly escaped three days in, but a patrol spotted him trying to climb over the prison wall. He wound up being recaptured and then moved to Provost Prison, which was still being overseen by his longtime enemy, William Cunningham. At this point, Mulligan was court-martialed. The lead witness against him was Benedict Arnold. But Arnold didn't really have any clear evidence to give. It's likely that he had simply named Mulligan as a spy because he had such long and obvious loyalist leanings. Cunningham testified as well, but his evidence was mostly his personal dislike of Hercules Mulligan. So with no hard evidence and yet another silver-tongued defense on the part of Mulligan himself, he was neither convicted nor acquitted, but kept in provost prison because surely, after so many arrests, something must be going on. This really worked out to be kind of a bad turning point for Hercules Mulligan, and we will talk about exactly how after a brief sponsor break. Records aren't clear on exactly how long Hercules Mulligan was detained this time around in Provost Prison. The reason for ultimately releasing him also is not totally clear, but it seems like he was in there for approximately five months. Even though his clothing shop had been open and staffed while he was in prison, business had dropped off precipitously. Previously, it had seemed as though British officers and soldiers were willing to overlook Mulligan's obviously loyalist leanings, whether it was because he was so friendly or because his store was so fashionable. They didn't seem willing to overlook Benedict Arnold's allegation that he was a spy, however, and this was especially true since he'd been imprisoned on charges of espionage and never acquitted of those charges. He wound up having to work for his brother while struggling to keep his own shop open. Even though loyalists were far less likely to shop in his store after this point, Hercules was still able to gather information while working at his brother's firm, which was still provisioning and outfitting the British military in the Americas. It was while working at his brother's firm that Hercules Mulligan heard of another plot to kill George Washington, intended to take place as he passed through Lebanon, Connecticut on March 5th of 1781. This followed the British forces learning that Washington was planning to meet up with Rochambeau. Sending messages via Cato was really no longer an option, both because of his own prior arrest and because he was owned by the not-ever-actually-acquitted-of-treason Hercules Mulligan. So Mulligan wrote to Washington and sent his message via Robert Townsend in the Culper Ring. The message arrived in time for Washington to change his route, avoid the British ambush, and still make his rendezvous with Rochambeau. So this was probably the second time that Mulligan saved Washington's life. Although the play Hamilton makes it sound as though the Patriots knew their plan for the Battle of Yorktown would work thanks to Mulligan's spy work, and there was quite a bit of espionage involved in that battle's success for the Patriots, Mulligan himself actually doesn't seem to have been a major player in that one. 
Most of the fighting in the American Revolutionary War ended after the Battle of Yorktown did. That was in October of 1781, although the war itself didn't officially end until September 3rd, 1783. That window between the end of the Battle of Yorktown and the end of the war was a particularly difficult one for Hercules Mulligan and his family. Without British officers and soldiers buying clothes from him, his clothing business nearly failed entirely. And without a British army to outfit anymore, he couldn't moonlight at his brother's firm anymore because there just wasn't enough work for him to do there. He wound up deeply in debt, and he tried and failed to offset this debt by working in real estate. With the end of the war, Benjamin Talmadge became afraid that some of his culper agent spies who had maintained loyalist covers during the war would be harassed or otherwise treated badly after the war had wrapped up. It was when meeting with Washington to try to figure out how to ensure the safety of his agents that Talmadge learned about Mulligan for the first time. At some point, the two men reportedly met and Mulligan described his spy work as, quote, generals have a way of talking sometimes when they're being fitted for an embroidered waistcoat. So I keep my ears open. On November 26, 1783, after the end of the war, George Washington and Alexander Hamilton went to Mulligan's home at 23 Queen Street to have breakfast with the Mulligan family, probably as a show of thanks for Mulligan's work. Washington also ordered a complete wardrobe of civilian clothes for Mulligan, who, from that point on, described himself as clothier to General Washington in his advertisements. This event turned his business back around, although it was still quite some time before he was financially solvent again. His name was posted in lists of insolvent debtors until 1785. During Washington's presidency, at which point the Capitol was in New York, he lived not far from Mulligan's shop, and he visited there several times. Washington also continued to buy clothes from Hercules Mulligan. Because of the extreme secrecy with which Mulligan had carried out his spy work, most of their surviving correspondence is actually about ordering clothes, including a letter written to order some moleskin and pants, which was sent from Philadelphia in 1792. Hercules and his wife wound up having eight children together, three sons and five daughters, and they prospered until his 1820 retirement. Their children were John, Sarah, Elizabeth, Margaret, William, Francis, Hercules, and Mary. Several of them lived quite long lives, although the younger three, Francis, Hercules, and Mary, died at the ages of 10, 9 months, and 5. Hercules Mulligan himself passed away in 1829, and he's buried in Trinity Churchyard, not that far from Alexander Hamilton. That is Hercules Mulligan's story. And while um, many people probably want to sing songs from Hamilton now, I have the Disney um, gospel choir Hercules thing going on in my head. (laughs) (laughs) It's very fun to say Hercules Mulligan. It is. It's a good name. And I feel like some of the some of the things that I read as as I was preparing for this, uh, you know, often we use people's surnames more when we're just talking about a person at length in a podcast. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it it just seemed like a lot of people were electing to call him Hercules Mulligan all the way through, maybe just because they were tickled by that being such an awesome name. I can't blame them. Uh, Do you have a little bit of listener mail for us as well? Do. It is from Stan. Stan says, good morning, ladies. I just finished listening to the Wasp episodes and thought you might enjoy some personal slash family lore regarding the WASP group. My grandmother was a registered nurse in the Army Air Corps during World War II. She was stationed stateside down in Dover, Delaware. She told us a story that involved herself and other nurses at the base. During the day, the nurses had washed their clothes and had everything hanging out on a clothesline to dry. 
During that day, a group of wasps flew into the base. Once on base, they showered and freshened up. When my grandmother and her nurse friends went to retrieve their clothes, they were missing underwear. The presumption was that when the wasps flew in, they nabbed the clean clothes to change into. After that, the nurses would dry their clothes inside their barracks. My grandmother told the story and laughed about it. I have no idea whether that family story is true or not, but it does amuse me a little bit that maybe if you were flying into a base and freshening up, uh, you might want something clean to put on. And, and, and maybe you, you might take a, a, a less than up and up way <laughs> to solve that problem during wartime. This letter goes on. My grandmother had to go to the mess hall to order food for the patients. So during this time, she started dating a man who would become my grandfather. She was a, uh, she was a second lieutenant. He was a staff sergeant. It was an officer and an enlisted man situation, which is frowned upon in the military. She finished her tour, was honorably discharged, and they were married. Then my grandfather was sent over to India to finish his time, and the war wrapped up. I find it amazing how women during World War II were allowed to do, quote, men's work. But once the men returned, women were sidelined. I think you did a great job of explaining how the wasps did their job in such a way as to not threaten a man's job. But as soon as things slowed down, they were ba- they were essentially threatening men's work by taking away jobs from men. Uh, think about it. This happened everywhere. Rosie the Riveter was sent home from the factory when the boys came back from the war front. This must have been very difficult for young women of that generation to have broken through the glass ceiling just to get pushed back down when the war was over. I was too young to really think about these things when my grandmother was alive. When I think about it, though, my mother grew up with two working parents, something that was kind of unusual back in those days. I feel like anyone can do anything regardless of your gender, race, orientation. But even today, I think there is a gap between women and men and also a race gap. I feel very strongly that there is a bias toward girls in certain race groups at a young age that carry on and perpetuate stereotyping. Will we as a society ever reach a place where everyone is equal based on skill? I don't know, but I think there needs to be a ton of fundamental changes to happen before society uh, embraces these viewpoints completely. Sincerely, Stan. Thank you so much, Stan. I love this story, as I alluded to. I love the story about uh, alleged undergarment theft. <laughs> it tickles me a little bit. I agree. Like It definitely was hard for uh, for women who had been out in the workforce and enjoyed in a lot of cases being out in the work- workforce then being basically uh, stepped backward once the war was over, which is one of the reasons why we have told some of those stories on the show. Uh, if you would like to write to us about this or any other podcast, you can at History Podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. We do already have every other thing ever mentioned in the word in the in the play Hamilton on the list already, so no need to do that. Uh, but anything else, go ahead, write to us. Uh, we're also on Facebook at facebook.com slash History and on Twitter at History. Our Tumblr is mistinhistory.tumblr.com. We're also on Pinterest at pinterest.com slash History. Our Instagram is History as well. You can come to our parent company's website, which is howstuffworks.com. Put the word spies into the search bar and you will find how spies work. We'll learn a little more about what we talked about today. You can also come to our website, which is mistinhistory.com. You will find show notes. You will find an archive of everything we have ever uh, done. You will find, uh, I just said show notes. Those are the ones for Holly, Holly's and my episodes, the one we have worked on, the ones we have worked on together. So you can do all that and a whole lot more at howstuffworks.com or mistinhistory.com. 
For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 